Here we go. It's June the 12th in the year of our Lord, 2023. You're listening to Law and Gospel. I'm Pastor Tom Baker. And on Mondays, we take a look at a reading for the following Sunday, which is the third Sunday after Pentecost on June the 18th in the year of our Lord, 2023. Readings are from Exodus 19, Romans 5, and Matthew 9. And once more, there are some wonderful, interesting tidbits in each of the readings for Christians to understand. You, you know, we're referred to as the priesthood of all believers. Where did that come about? If we've been saying anything during the many years on KFUO, it comes about because God has revealed it, first of all, in the Old Testament. That's where Jesus got a lot of his information about his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And so we turn also to Exodus 19. If you have any questions of what I'm about to say, you can email me at tombaker at brick.net. That's B-R-I-C-K dot net, Tom Baker. All right. Exodus 19 talks about this priesthood of believers. The people have left Egypt. They're in the wilderness of Sinai. They camp before the mountain, and Moses goes up to God on the mountain. And God calls to him and says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, eagles' wings, eagles fly very quickly, and they're one of the most protected birds because of their strength. On, on YouTube, there actually are movies where and videos of eagles lifting large animals and carry them to their nest. So an eagle would be considered very, very important and strong. And that's what happened when they were taken through the Red Sea. Then God says to Moses, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So that's what Moses did. He called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And how did the people respond? At this time, this is verse 8 of Exodus 19. All the people answered together and said, 
all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, that didn't last very long, did it? Moses was up on the mountain for a while, and they made a carved image out of their jewelry, a calf to worship him. Not God, but the calf. In, in fact, much of the Old Testament is how the people of Israel, whom God intended to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they actually made images out of wood and metal and bow down before them. They would kiss them and they would sacrifice even their children to them. This is why God took the people into Babylonian captivity in order to help them to understand how they were going against God's word. But of course, even if they repented and tried to do good, they never would have been able to be perfect in their good because of their sinful nature. So what did God do? That's what the epistle is about. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. Now, these first words, for while we were still weak, that means we were unable to follow the will of God perfectly. At the right time, Christ died for the, now what do you think the next word is? For his priests, you know, for those that he wanted to be his treasured possession, his holy nation. No, Christ died for the ungodly. See, this is what makes Christianity totally different than any other religion in the world. If you look at every other religion in the world, their gods or their God never dies for his enemies. He puts them to death. He encourages them to do good works. And most religions outside of Christianity have the idea that you get to heaven by your works. That's the difference between law and gospel. The law actually brings God's wrath, as we heard from last week's lesson, because we fall short of obedience to God. And by falling short, we receive the wrath of God. Now, Romans 5 goes on in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Yeah, why would you have to die for a righteous person? Because a righteous person isn't demanding a punishment. There is no sin in a righteous person. So God would not die for a righteous person. No other religion in the world has their God die for their enemies. But Christianity does. He has Christ die for the ungodly. That's why we are weak. And it goes on, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And that occurs occasionally. 
when people will fight a war or a battle to protect a good person, but God dies to protect the ungodly. And that's you. That's me. In fact, verse 8 underscores this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus took upon himself the punishment you and I deserved. We confess that in many of the liturgies of the church, where we say that we are poor, miserable sinners. We have sinned by thought, word, and deed, and we deserve nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. That's proper repentance, an acknowledgement of our sinful condition. And yet, verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now there we're talking about God's the Father wrath. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve. They were removed from the Garden of Eden and given the curse of work and pain in childbirth. Well, that wrath of God has now been removed. God cannot be in wrath against his people who have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Justified, it says, by his blood. Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, remember many of the sacrifices were for lambs or goats or other animals, and they pointed forward to the Lamb of God that John the Baptizer talked about Jesus, who had come to what? To take away the sins of the world. Where did he take them? He took them to the cross. He became sin for us. That's why God said to him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He obeyed the father. He did what you and I were unable to do. Even if we have been crucified by ourselves, we could not have paid for our sins, but we were crucified Jesus, who is the righteous one. He did not deserve the crucifixion he received. And therefore, we are therefore justified by his blood. Well, what that means is, let's say you rob a bank and you go to court and the judge says, well, 10 years in jail. But then a friend of yours gets up and says, I will spend the 10 years in jail instead of him. Now, the reason the judge won't allow that is because even if he's your friend, he's not the one who did the crime. But in Christianity, 
Jesus is regarded as the one who did the crime. He became sin for us at the baptism of John the baptizer. Remember, that was a baptism of repentance, which John said, you don't need to do that. I need to be baptized by you, not vice versa. But in order to fulfill all righteousness, that Jesus would be regarded as the sinful one whom God would put on a cross by himself and pay for our sins. Therefore, we are saved from the wrath of God. That's referred to in Corinthians, where it says that God is now reconciled to us. Now, normally a reconciliation, let's say you have an argument with a friend. He will not be reconciled to you until you ask him, I'm sorry for what I did. Would you please forgive me? Then there can be a reconciliation. But in this case, the reconciliation took place by Jesus paying for your sins, by him taking the suffering of being forsaken by God and paying for those sins. So verse 10 really summarizes it well. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's God's way of thinking. It may not be the government's way of thinking. You can't be reconciled by somebody else paying for your crime. But in Christianity, God the Father does have Jesus getting reconciled to us by paying for our crimes. And it says, this happened while we were his enemies. This happened while we were weak. This happened while we were the ungodly. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Well, what difference does that make to you? Well, the rest of verse 10 explains it. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That is the life of Jesus who rose from the dead. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, Paul, writing to the Romans by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he continues to explain how this happened. He reminds us in verse 12 of Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world, now how did sin come into the world? Through one man. And what did that result in? Death through sin. In other words, there was no death until Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. This, of course, flies in the face of those who believe in evolution, where there were billions of deaths 
of animals, including monkeys that became human beings. Ridiculous. No, death came through one man, and that death was because of sin. And it spread to all people because all of us sinned. For sin indeed was there. So just as death reigned from Adam through Moses to us, even those who sinning, even though we did not sin like the transgression of Adam, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. But that's justice, where we get what we deserve. But in Christ, we get grace. The free gift, that's grace, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Paul's point is pretty clear. Yes, sin entered the world leading to death. That was by one man. But also by one man, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. Reconciliation entered into the world because of his death on the cross. And by his death on the cross, grace abounded to many who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, Jesus understood that because he had read the Old Testament. And therefore, in the gospel for this Sunday, from Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says, he went throughout all the cities, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. Now, those two parts are really important to understand. What does it mean, the gospel of the kingdom? The word gospel can refer to good news. And the kingdom is referring to the kingdom of God on earth, which is the holy Christian church, leading to the kingdom of God in eternity in heaven after the day of judgment. And guess what that kingdom of God will be associated with? a healing of every disease and every affliction. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. Go to the book of Revelation and listen to the words of John through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who attest to you that in heaven there will be no disease, there will be no affliction, there will be no suffering, there will be no death, there will be no sin. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus foreshowed that here on earth when he healed diseases and every affliction. It says in verse 36 of Matthew 9, 
When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Now that word compassion means to suffer with them because they were harassed and helpless. And then we go to another great metaphor of the Bible, like sheep without a shepherd. Now what happens to sheep without a shepherd? Well, first of all, they get lost. Second of all, they're not taken to green pastures. Third, they try to drink from raging rivers that drown them. Fourth, they are devoured by wild animals. That's sheep without a shepherd. But with a shepherd, namely Jesus, he becomes indeed the bread that we seek, the water that we drink, the water that baptizes us, the water that justifies us. He is the one where the harvest is plentiful. But what does he say to his shepherds, namely the apostles? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, this is a situation that is occurring in our time. Uh, many churches are calling for pastors, but there are not sufficient pastors for the need. In fact, in one of the congregations I'm serving, they have now just been declined by the 10th pastor they called. See, the way it works is a congregation gets a list of names uh, from the denomination who are appropriate to be pastors in your congregation. Those who hopefully have gone to the seminary, have learned the Hebrew and the Greek, and have a knowledge of law and gospel. So we call from that list. Well, just this last week, the 10th pastor they've called declined. So in two weeks, they're going to be calling again another pastor. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. And therefore, our entire Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, are earnestly praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, Jesus had many disciples that were following him. And he called to him 12 of those disciples, because there were over 100 people. In fact, remember after Judas died, they chose a 12th disciple from these disciples. So we make a distinction between disciples who follow Jesus and the apostles whom Jesus gave authority to. And what did he do? To the 12 disciples he chose, he had them cast out and heal every disease and every affliction. 
and then it gives the names of the 12 disciples, ending with, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. But verse 5 of chapter 9 says, at the beginning of the ministry, these 12 Jesus sent out. And listen to what he instructed them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Now, the problem is, why is he saying not to go to the Gentiles or the town of the Samaritans? Because originally, the task of the apostles was to the house the house of Israel. Many people in Israel needed to hear about the good news. Did that mean that Jesus didn't care about the Gentiles or the Samaritans? No. In fact, he was blamed by the Pharisees for eating with Gentiles and Samaritans. Remember the woman at the Samaritan well that he told her she believed he was the Messiah, instructed the town, and they believed he was the Messiah. She was teaching what the apostles were told to teach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That God did not forget about the Gentiles is clear, not only in the personal teaching and ministry of Jesus, but we have a new apostle. His name is Paul. And he was brought to faith for one purpose, and that was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And therefore, many of the epistles of Paul are written to Gentiles, not to the Jews to tell them that they also are saved. Well, you and I are those Gentiles who have been reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. You have received justification. And we're going to be talking about that in the hymn tomorrow. O God, O Lord of heaven and earth. Join me and Mark Smith. I'm Tom Baker tomorrow's study. God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check out to Law & Gospel and mail to Law & Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132 or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. 
Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.